Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Just before the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics earlier today, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping held their 38th meeting and the first for the Chinese leader in person with a foreign leader since the start of the pandemic. They pledged limitless ties with China criticizing America for allegedly stoking tensions in Hong Kong uh, and uh, encouraging Taipei to seek independence, uh, a statement that is patently false, uh, while Russia accused uh, the United States of doing the same thing in Ukraine, both oppose a larger NATO and made clear that the two nations would, quote, stand against attempts by external forces to undermine security and stability in their common adjacent regions, uh, end quote, according to a lengthy uh, statement issued by uh, the Kremlin, uh, adding that they, quote, intend to counter interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext oppose color revolutions and will increase cooperation in the aforementioned areas, end quote. Um, Obviously, they don't believe that uh, neither Ukraine nor Taiwan are sovereign nations. Meanwhile, in Washington, political division reigns as lawmakers work on new Russia sanctions, uh, try to pass an appropriations measure, and the United States innovation and a competition act as well as compete bill competes bills uh and israel's defense minister benny gantz who was uh, a former chief of um the uh, chairman of uh israel's uh joint chiefs of staff visited bahrain as israel for the first time joined saudi arabia pakistan yemen oman and other nations in a u.s-led maritime exercise in the red sea joining us as uh, they do almost every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Security Pacific Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, who is a senior advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and the senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who is affiliated, among other affiliations, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent uh, conference and trade show. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune in to The Downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us uh, and bearing us with me for that introduction. Uh, Michael, uh, start us off. A uh, lot going on. Lawmakers are working on appropriations, uh, tussling over rival sanctions packages uh, on Russia. They're working on USI CA uh, and competes measures. Uh, there's build back better, but it's sort of dead-ish than live-ish, um, although there are elements of it that'll be resuscitated. Let's start with the omnibus. Uh, where, where are we on trying to avert a year-long continuing resolution? Because I talked to a smart, savvy friend of mine this morning who's convinced that we're going to have a year-long CR and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> I don't agree. All right. I know you don't. So, you say it's going to be solved in March, but take it away on, in any direction you want to take it. it Iron Mike. It's, it's Friday. Let's go into the weekend with a positive attitude. All right. So <laughs> look, we've got 15 days till government funding expires. <clears throat> so there's no way we're going to get an omnibus. Plenty of time. Plenty, Plenty of time. time. Exactly. Look, there's no way we're going to get an omnibus passed by, by February 18th. And also right now the, the house is even scheduled to be in session the week of the 14th. So my point um, exactly. Right. Uh, so they may have to come back to pass a short term CR, but it's very likely, I think, that they pass uh, another short term CR next week. Now, you know, the week began with actually some hopes that they would reach an agreement on the top lines by the end of this week. But obviously, that's not going to happen. We're uh, already at Friday. Uh, you know, they really have to agree on a top line really first in order for them to start negotiating the differences between the 12 bills. And that's not to mention, you know, the policy uh, considerations that also need to be worked out. But, you know, lawmakers and aides that are involved in these discussions um, said yesterday that progress is being made and they expect a top line deal uh, possibly by this weekend or early next week. 
And we really got to take a look at what, what dates are being floated for the CR. If, if it looks like it's going to be really short, that's a good indicator that, that they believe they're close and they can get a deal done. If it's longer, then that doesn't bode well for a deal. And the date that's being floated today is March 11th, which is pretty short. So uh, there's a lot of optimism right. uh, being put out there, especially by the Democrats, um, you know, Leahy and Pelosi. And look, Pelosi, you've heard me say this week after week. I mean, this is her number one priority in her uh, dear colleague uh, to her, um, her conference. If she wants to get it done, it's going to get done. And I'm very confident now that this is going to get done. Uh, and generally, whenever she says she wants to do this kind of stuff, she, she does have a tendency of delivering uh, on it. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, other legislation, right? Yes. whether the rival sanctions packages mm -hmm. uh, that are uh, ongoing. Uh, Republicans obviously trying to sanction Nord Stream 2, uh, jumping the gun a little bit on, on that. Um, whereas Democrats want a broader sanctions package they want to approve and leave the door open for Nord Stream 2 uh, downstream. Uh, um, and, and then you've got, of course, U.S. Uh, ICA and, and compete sort of give us a sense on where we stand on all this. Yeah. Well, about some of the other things that are that will be talked about this week on the Hill. But maybe, maybe, let me just mention one more thing on the omnibus and the CR. Something interesting did happen this week uh, that the Republicans, as you know, have been wanting parity. Uh, between the non-defense domestic discretionary, which is up 13%, and the defense spending, which looks like will be up 5%, that they actually are proposing a bigger increase in defense spending above that 5%. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, because that is a that is a way to get to parity you know, by increasing the defense number. So uh, hopefully we'll see by this weekend or, or next week. So you know something we've talked about each week, and I think after today we won't have to talk about for a while, is, uh, is, is BBB. Uh, you know, last week, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, called for the BBB to be passed by the State of the Union address on, on March 1st. Uh, obviously, that's not going to happen. In fact, Manchin's response when asked about it, he said, what build, build back better bill? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it's dead. Uh, so, and, and I don't believe that it's going to be broken up into smaller versions because that would have to go through the committee process. Uh, they wouldn't be able to use reconciliation and the committee process takes an enormous amount of time. So I think that, you know, BBB is DEAD. Um, so then... Uh, but what something that is happening is those China bills are moving. So the Senate did pass its version of their U.S.-China Competition Act, which they call USICA, back in June. Uh, the House spent all day yesterday voting on amendments and is doing final passage uh, this morning. But there are some big differences. I mean, the Senate bill was a bipartisan bill. I mean, it passed uh, 68 to 32. Right. Uh, the House bill that will pass today is, a, is not a bipartisan bill. Uh, and in fact, you know, a lot of Republicans feel they were shut out of the discussions and negotiations and they have nicknamed, you know, the, the, um, the Democrats are calling it the Competes Act. The Republicans are calling it the American uh, Concedes to China Act. Uh, so, so yeah. you know, there are some, you know, similarities. Between it is a blatant capitulation, of course. <laughs> uh, no comment. So, uh, you know, look, there's similarities on the funding for, you know, for semiconductors and for supply chain and critical manufacturing. Uh, but there are some key differences between the bills that will be worked out in conference. But uh, again, there's a push to get this done by March 1st by the State of the Union address. No way is this going to get conference and, and done on time. Uh, but I do believe that there are positive prospects uh, to conference to, to conference the bill. So that remains to be seen. And then we have some action uh, this week on, on Russia sanctions. And uh, actually, I did speak to the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee earlier this week, and he is calling his sanctions bill the mother of all sanctions, uh, but only if, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. And he wants this bill to be bipartisan, and, you know, he wants uh, White House buy-in as well. But as you know, and, and Menendez has also said that this is an important part of deterrence, right, for us to cue everything up. The adversary sees what it is we're going to do, and it's it's a tangible uh, element of deterrence. Exactly. Look, Menendez is from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. All right. These guys in Jersey don't mess around. Right. So he's <laughs> going to come up with something pretty strong and pretty tough. And, and in fact, you know, he has been talking about some sanctions that could come into effect you know, prior to any invasion to discourage an invasion, you know, cyber, you know, uh, sanctioning entities and individuals uh, centered around the cyber attacks that we've been, uh, that have been coming out of Russia, the false flag, people responsible for the false flag activities, and even possibly sanctioning some Ukrainian individuals who have been conspiring uh, with, with the Russian government. So uh, I think that that's on a positive track. It's just a question of, of, of when. And also, you know, the Republicans are looking to stick uh, a, a program in this bill, which I think probably will end up in, that we haven't seen since World War II, which would be a Lend-Lease uh, program to allow the U.S. to send, you know, weapons, equipment, and supplies to Ukraine uh, with the promise of, you know, payment at a future date. 
Uh, Mark, I want to bring you in because obviously everybody on this panel uh, is a savvy political observer, uh, but uh, you you have been spending a little bit more time formally on the Hill uh, in your uh, capacity as senior advisor. Uh, walk us through, you know, in, and I, I suspect you're going to talk about the important cyber uh, elements of uh, the two measures, uh, the Senate and the House measures uh, that uh, Michael just discussed. Uh, Vago, you're exactly right. Uh, the the competes in the USCA Act have some really important uh, cyber elements in them. There's there's a large uh, shared language portion in these bills, and and uh, he mentioned uh, correctly the the Chips Act. Uh, what used to be the Chips Act, but for microchip semiconductors, fifty two billion dollars. There's a significant amount of funding for basic R and D coming out of the National Science Foundation. There's some other significant funding in there for infrastructure research. And I think that stuff is going to be in both bills. And if they can do a good conference, we'll come through. But in addition, there's some great cybersecurity stuff in the House bill. There's money for the uh, Cyber Core Scholarship for Service Program and, uh, and, and other such uh, education and training efforts that we really need to get into. So I, I recognize there's some partisan language that was added in uh, that's that in the House version that'll be sh uh, sh uh, shredded out uh, during conference. But if we can get that bill, we will be competing uh, with, uh, with China in some important areas. And, and believe me, we are lagging behind. Even if we spent all this money, we would still be significantly behind the Chinese investment in the last 10 years in these same areas. So we, we do need to get this bill moving. We do need to get it conferenced properly and get, and get to a point where, uh, where we're starting to invest in our semiconductor microchip industry and in our basic R&D being run, you know, coming out of, you know, not the DOD stuff, the stuff coming out of the National Science Foundation. Uh, I, I, uh, I can't agree with you more that, you know, if, if you're not investing, you're gonna get exactly nothing out of it, right? And, and the government uh, is well within its rights uh, to, to try to do this. I'm not saying go to an arsenal system nor make it exclusively uh, US investment, but this whole notion that somehow we can take a lighter touch and not be guiding it and somehow would end up benefiting from what everybody is doing is, is uh, I don't think, on the mark. And you have to spend, invest a lot more money on education uh, as, as well as well as facilities. Uh, before we go to the broader strategic question uh, of the, the budding alliance between uh, Beijing and, and Moscow that uh, got a boost uh, earlier today, uh, Patrick and Dove, do you guys want to weigh in on, on USICA and competes? Yeah, uh, I, I would like to point yeah, out, ahead, I mean, Doug. actually, it, it's a lead to what Patrick will probably talk about. It, it seems to me that uh, this budding, uh, what's becoming really like an alliance, whether they call it that or not, I think that's going to stimulate Congress to move even more quickly on China. I mean, the big, the, the realization, I think, that's finally hitting this town is that uh, we can't assume that we can deal with one crisis and that everybody else will wait till that crisis is over before starting new trouble. And it, it's the the meeting that, that these two guys are having over there in China, uh, the fact of uh, what North Korea just did, the fact that the Iranians and the Chinese and Russians have had joint exercises, all of that underscores the fact that we've got to be able to look more than one way at one time. And I think that this is going to stimulate the China bills and, and the, the House and the Senate to actually get their heads together more quickly than would otherwise be the case. Um, I, I well, Let me use this. Let me just also point out to the audience, uh, you have a piece that came out in the Hill today. Shimon Perez saw it coming uh, and the Emirates made it uh, happen. Uh, so I commend the audience to check that out. And Dove, a couple of weeks ago, I remember you having uh, written about this, uh, about, uh, you know, hey, we've got to pay more attention to a China-Russia axis. You know, I've been talking and warning uh, about that as well, right? I mean, many people have been making the case that, no, you know, let's, uh, let's be careful. Let's not let them both uh, get on the same side, right? A very traditional thing going back to Kissinger and, and earlier, uh, you know, keep them separate uh, and keep them separate permanently. But we saw that they benefited from our forbearance and ultimately now are turning uh, on that. Patrick, let me uh, let me go to you to sort of get your sense on all of this, right? Um, this has been going on for more than 15 years. Uh, you know, everybody has sought to sort of minimize uh, these two getting together. The, the language was pretty compelling. Uh, certainly a lot of optics uh, going on uh, as, as, as well. What, what does this agreement mean? What did the optics and the messaging mean? And how does the United States uh, and its allies need to respond to it? Well, Bongo, it's not that it was new. In fact, it's very much 
part of a long-term pattern of greater integration between Russia and China's strategic and economic approach to world order. Um, they are very much uh, interdependent now. Um, China's definitely the senior partner. Russia's definitely doing more groveling right now immediately because they need an economic lifeline uh, in case tensions heat up further over Ukraine and sanctions are imposed. Um, but the, the main optic of the of the Putin-Xi summit uh, at the Olympics, just before the Olympics open, was really for a foreign audience and, and for the United States in particular to try to impress us uh, that these two countries are going to drive the future decisions on the rules and on order. Uh, the 5,400 word joint statement they issued, which resembles some long White House joint statements that I've seen and read closely in the past about uh, allies, which have laundry lists of declarations and positions. Um, it really needs to be read and dissected closely because while some of it's nonsense, some of it's doublespeak like democracy is a universal value, um, other parts of it are uh, are telegraphing where they're going. Um, right. and, and this is advocating a Sino-Russo hegemony, a, a world safe for autocrats and spheres of influence. There's just no question when you read this document. So it's like the Ukraine issue or the Taiwan issue. There are some genuine conflicts of interest we have. So we may be able to, to hold each other off in peaceful coexistence, so to speak. But we disagree on the world. <laughs> we disagree on, on fundamental issues. Um, and for instance, um, let's take AUKUS. So the Australia-UK-US strategic partnership that's now been struck up. Uh, and Foreign Minister Blinken is heading to Australia, in fact, next week. Um, it, it, they put that as the centerpiece of what's driving an arms race in Asia, um, right. which, is, which is nonsense. I mean, conventional nuclear power is important for submarines, but it's not causing the arms race. Um, you know, I can go on. About we can we can point we can point to a Chinese a Chinese shipbuilding program that's every two years building the equivalent of the French Navy, right? We could argue that that is what's really precipitating an arms race. The Japanese don't want to spend any more money on defense any more than the United States wants to spend any more money on defense. And sure as sure as hell, the Filipinos don't want to spend any more money on defense, right? I mean, they're the ones who are catalyzing and propelling this thing, and it's it's sort of preposterous to me that. Um, you can characterize that any other way to anybody who's sentient. It is preposterous. Uh, our ambassador, Rahm Emanuel, in Japan just had uh, his meeting with Prime Minister Kishida, the opening meeting, and he gave him uh, a Chicago Cubs jersey and he had a, a, a White Sox jersey as well, both with a number 100 because Kishida is the 100th Prime Minister of Japan. Excellent. I was joking that they're making the world safe for democracy, whereas Putin and Xi are making the world safe for autocracy. Um, how do I, I, I'm just uh, sort of curious, right? So how do we respond to this, right? I mean, I talked to uh, a a a um, a fair-minded, bipartisan, neutral critic of administrations, and and what he said about Team Biden and and the past week was, look, I mean, and and it's true that on any given week. The Chinese are doing something and making demarches. The Russians are doing something, obviously not as big as putting a 130,000 plus uh, on, on three sides of a, of a sovereign nation and threatening to invade it. But the North Koreans are almost always acting up and the Iranians are always up to something. Um, what, what he said was the administration is trying to get its arms around fixing several administrations worth of mistaken decisions. And that's not going to be a pivot that happens on a dime. Um, how, how does the United States need to respond and has the administration, Patrick set the right foundation? And I invite all of you to sort of weigh in on this, uh, in order to start building that counter coalition, because despite months of negotiation and talking, right, we see critical elements of us being able to execute a united front holding firm, but not as strongly as we would like, right? I mean, the, the German actions are actually actively undermining, right? I mean, so Putin is actually winning without even doing anything. He hasn't even invaded anything. He can wait as his, his propensity is until after the Olympics, right? He screwed it up for uh, uh, who in 2008 by invading uh, Georgia. So those were the headlines. He's held off now, uh, right? In, in after the Sochi games, he went into Ukraine, right? Uh, not, not long afterwards. Um, you know, is this administration on the right track? And is the rest of the world getting the message that it's wake up time? I think fairly, the administration is doing a lot of things that 
set us up to strengthen our foundations, but the challenge is bigger than what we've done so far. And so there's much more work to be done, and we're not entirely unified on how to do it at home, nor are we unified with our, even our closest allies. You mentioned Germany. Uh, I could talk about the South Korean election that's coming up. They just had a TV debate over defense issues, and it sounds like the ruling Democratic Party is leaning towards strategic neutrality, frankly, when you think about how they want to invest in their own defense systems. Um, uh, so we have some real challenges here as well. I think the um, problem with uh, the denial strategy of Putin on Ukraine, by the way, is that it, he really can have it either way. He's, set, he's prepared the battlefield so well from his perspective that if he goes in, he can deny it because he set up the pretext, a staged sort of attack. Um, and if he doesn't go in, he can deny that he ever intended to go in. So it's kind of his win-win. And we're, meanwhile, left trying to mobilize allies and partners to stop all of these different um, avenues of approach from Russia in this case. Um, and Russia is really at the vanguard of this Russo-China uh, probing uh, of America's power and will and commitment to global leadership, especially after the Afghan withdrawal. Um, so whatever you think about the Afghan withdrawal, and again, I, I'm on the record supporting it, the manner in which we did it has invited uh, Russia to take a very risky action um, to try to probe our weakness. And that's what's happening here. So yes, the Americans um, have moved more troops, frankly, than NATO. I mean, it's, NATO has not moved, you know, the NRF or the VJTF, the two sort of rapid uh, things that they could move. Uh, we're the ones moving some forces, and it's only in the thousands, and it's relatively modest, and it's to protect NATO territory first. And then, yes, the arms flowing into Ukraine are meant to provide self-defense for Ukraine. And yes, the sanctions package that would go in effect, presumably if they can agree on it, after any invasion would be a severe sort of economic financial hit. Um, hopefully, the arms going to Ukraine would provide hardware to make casualties for Russian aggression. Uh, and make them pay in that way. And meanwhile, Russia's in, you know, Putin's in Beijing trying to make sure that China and Russia can impose the cost on the US-led system. Uh, and that's what this is about. So this whole document that they issued on the new era, it's always a new era with the Chinese, uh, of, of global sustainable development, which is nonsense. Uh, it's really about pushing back on the sanctions regime, the rules that the US and allies are leading uh, against the Quad, against AUKUS, against NATO, uh, and on pressure on Taiwan, on, on Ukraine, uh, and others like North Korea and Iran will be uh, following suit and taking advantage of whatever openings are there for them. Um, Mark, uh, give us give us your sense on all this, uh, and uh, uh, Dove, want to get yours, and then Michael, your sort of congressional take uh, on where uh, lawmakers are on this, because again, there's been shrill partisanship surrounding it, um, you know, there are folks who would like American combat troops to go to Ukraine, although that doesn't seem like anybody's really interested in doing that. Right. Uh, Mark, uh, Dove and, and Michael, go ahead. So a few thoughts. One, I, I want to circle back all the way to what uh, uh, Michael said in the beginning about uh, Senator Menendez's bill. And I do think having a strong past legislation, you know, enacted legislation that clearly lays out what we are going to do should uh, Russia take action is a good deterrent step. So uh, totally for that. And, and the kind of the, the more aggressive, the better in, in the language. Um, on the specific issue, as uh, you may recall, I was a, the, uh, a one star in UCOM as, as a war planner um, uh, the, uh, after Georgia and before Crimea. And you know, planning for the defense of Ukraine is not something that's realistic, either in a NATO context or in a coalition of the willing context. Uh, context. And it's an important to discuss things that way because the visit to Russia that bothers me the most is probably the one by Viktor Orban, right? Uh, a NATO member going there, not carrying the uh, the party tune, so to speak. And I think it's going to be very hard uh, after Russia does something to get NATO perfectly organized and agreed on a set of facts and a set of responses. So we do have to be working very carefully among the coalition of the willing NATO allies to, and, and maybe non-NATO European allies, to do the, you know, to press back against Russia uh, after an invasion and to fully support uh, Ukrainian forces as, as, they, as they attempt to push back. So um, getting the 3,000 troops there was very important. Those are enablers uh, for the for a large part, and they allow the U.S. to both flow forces easier 
and control forces once in theater. And that in itself is a good demonstration effort. The Russians know exactly what those forces are and what their purpose is. And so hopefully that'd have some deterrent effect as well. So I kind of think those steps are good. I think we have to, we have to recognize the challenging position we're in both militarily due to geography of Ukraine and politically due to the fact that maintaining an alliance with the numbers we have and the, and the political persuasions we have within that alliance is going to be a very challenging event. Do, do you think he goes in after the uh, Olympics or is he winning by actually not having to do anything? So uh, I think no, that if he does go in, it's only it's for something that Dove mentioned last time we spoke and I think referred to earlier, the idea of maybe just a land bridge, uh, kind of a, a small operation to secure the land bridge to Crimea. I don't think this is an all-in thing because I don't think he's prepared for it properly economically for the long-term impact on uh, on his economy and on his uh, you know public credibility inside uh, Russia after several months of significant sanctions. Dove? Well, let me pick up uh, where Mark just left off. Um, I think uh, he clearly sees the uh, Germans as key to his strategy. And I think that uh, just a, a small slice of Ukraine will justify the Germans refusing to really be helpful on Nord Stream 2. And uh, part of our problem, quite honestly, and it's ironic, but part of our problem is that NATO is so big. And because it's so big and because everybody forgets that you need each country to make an independent decision as to whether it supports an, a NATO-wide activity, um, it makes it very, very difficult to keep cohesion in the alliance. And it's not just Orban, obviously. I don't know where the Greeks will come out on this. Um, <clears throat> there are others as well who may be questionable. And, and of course, there are the Germans and the French pursuing their own separate way of dealing with all this. So in one sense, Putin is already very, very successful because he has made clear the real, very real fissures inside NATO. And frankly, if on this one, we have to build a coalition of the willing, that means that NATO is, is really quite meaningless. Uh, so that's problem number one. Problem number two is that I don't sense that we have anything like the kind of leadership in the economic commercial sphere uh, that we do in the military sphere. Hard as it is to get military cohesion, Look at the mess we've got with economic cohesion. And if we real, you know, if we really want this alliance to stand together, um, we're going to have to recognize that uh, economics is every bit as important as as the military. Uh, and frankly, that's where Putin is, is placing his bets. Uh, and so I think that uh, right now, uh, yes, what Menendez is doing is fine. But again, it's it's waiting for Putin to do something major. And, and he's just too smart in that regard. Between that and what we were just talking about regarding uh, his relationship with Xi, which, which is frankly a massive hedge for him economically as well, um, we've got our hands full and I don't know that we're up to dealing with it. Um, let me ask uh, two uh, questions. Uh, you know, Devin, if you want to take a, a bite out of this, but I think, uh, uh, Michael, I want to get your uh, sense on this as well, right? We, for decades, have been looking at sanctions as the weapon uh, to use, right? I mean, during the Cold War, we, we were not sanctioning the Russians very much. Uh, we use that as a tool against other people. But then, you know, because we, be we are very uh, conflict averse, we are now increasingly leaning on sanctions as the tool. Uh, and then the Trump administration turned sanction as a tool against allies and partners, right? What, the weaponization of sanctions works until the international community adjusts and actually reduces reliance on the dollar, creates another reserve currency. And there was discussion, and we discussed it on this very program, where frustrated some of America's closest allies were so frustrated that people were looking for what is a possible alternative. And at some point, the Chinese and the Russians will want an alternative, right? So all of a sudden now, the entire international system becomes interested in taking away the tool the United States has to try to impose international order. Well, I, I get I into agree. a situation where we're relying too much on sanctions and eventually break the very lever we're pulling all the time. 
Well, so many years ago, I wrote a piece about sanctions. And uh, we were actually at that point sanctioning literally countries from A to Z. The Z was Zimbabwe at the time. And it already was clear then, at least to me, that sanctions, they worked in very, very specific cases. South Africa is the one that everybody points to. Rhodesia is the other one. Uh, but you had the whole world essentially behind that set of sanctions. Once you get beyond those two, it's very, very hard to see how sanctions have worked. Um, they didn't work against Nazi Germany, for sure. Um, they haven't really worked in, in most cases. And that's because you get these divisions where different countries have different views of their economic relationships with the targeted country. And uh, second of all, uh, because frankly, countries themselves always find a way around the problem, including, by the way, Iraq. Uh, and so uh, it's not the countries, it's the regimes, perhaps, but the regimes are the ones that are targeted. Uh, we are overusing sanctions, and uh, the, the Trump uh, example just shows that if you use sanctions against your friends, it blows up in your face in other ways. Uh, yes, we're overusing them, and I think. We're using them because we have no imagination. We have no strategy. We are not thinking forward. We are stuck in the 1970s, I'm afraid. Or maybe the early 1990s where we, we think we have a lot more schlitz uh, than, uh, than we do, right? I mean, one of the, what I thought one of the ironies was every time I would listen to President Trump, I would, I, I would think that he imagined himself as Eisenhower. It's just that it's not 1956 anymore and, and you can't bring France uh, you know, Britain, Germany to heal in, in Suez anymore, right? I mean, that, that moment sort of has, has passed. Uh, M Michael, uh, give us your sense. I mean, do lawmakers understand that the sanction lever is maybe over pulled at this point? Um, you know, I think for the most part, they probably don't. And I got to tell you, I, I agree with everything uh, Dove you know, just had, had to say. And I think what people need to realize, too, is, you know, what Doug mentioned is that these countries do get around our sanctions. And we see now the relationship between China and Russia, that China is going to do everything they can to ease the burden on Russia if we enter and you know, impose sanctions on them. And then, you know, the fact, again, uh, getting back to the fact that we know strategy, the fact that we did not enter into TPP, we've talked about this previously, and many of the countries that we were going to enter into this agreement with entered into the regional comprehensive economic partnership with China. So does that mean that Australia, Japan, uh, New Zealand, you know, Singapore, all these countries that suppose their allies are going to cooperate, you know, in, in these sanctions now that they're in this new trade agreement with, with China. Um, and, you know, I think that there's really, like Dove said, there's really no strategy because I look at some of the things that are happening on the Hill now and, you know, with, with China and Russia cooperating the way they are, more so than I think ever we've seen before. And it's not just them too. We mentioned those joint naval exercises. Iran was also part of those joint naval exercises. And it shows that we need friends more than ever around the world. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that we don't have those friends and more uh, arms control legislation. Not, I mean, uh, uh, not arms control, but more legislation introduced earlier this week uh, to limit our ability to sell weapons to countries because of human rights abuses. And that's on the eye of the beholder. You have a lot of people on the Hill that will say, oh, I read the story in the New York Times. I read the story in the Intercept, you know, whatever. Uh, because of that, you know, we're not going to approve these sales. And the Chinese and the Russians are more than happy to step in and sell these weapon systems. In many cases, more advanced systems than we're willing to sell. Uh, to those countries. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose the interoperability, we're going to lose the basic rights, and we're going to lose the influence that we would have had we sold those weapons in the first place. So I, I think there's a lot of rhetoric on the Hill, but a clear lack of understanding of how serious this problem is. Well, what I think is most fascinating is that some folks uh, on the right, uh, right, I mean, we had Bridge Colby, uh, a strategist, a very, very highly intelligent uh, uh, guy, uh, right, one of uh, you know, the lead on the 2018 national defense strategy. And, and, you know, he is not as bothered by China, for example, filling the vacuum in the Middle East. Um, and, and that was a problem that was developing in the Obama administration. And when you would talk to people in the Obama administration and you would say how frustrated countries they are, whether their frustrations are justified or not, uh, you know, real or manufactured, uh, ultimately, you know, the attitude from the United States and unfortunately, Dove, right, the administration in which you so ably serve kind of had a similar uh, view, right? If they don't like it, where are they going to go? How about they just take a helpful cup of shut the F up and get on the good right. foot and, and know that we're the only game in town? Well, right. after a while, people recognize they're not the only game in town. 
Uh, Patrick, uh, let me. Could I add one more point, Vago? Which, um, you know, if you look back to the 1930s when all these dictators really got going, and you look at the economies at that point, everybody was economically isolationist. And when you then think about the attitude in this country today, in both parties, by the way, against free trade, well, why do you expect countries? that have to live by trade to simply follow our lead if we don't want free trade with them and the Chinese offer it to them. And so I think there is a correlation between what's going on in terms of autocrats taking over and the fact that in a very real way, we are becoming economically isolationist. Um, uh, Look, if you're not making the case from the bully pulpit of the presidency, and making a case as leaders, I think the most cowardly thing is when everybody retreats into these positions because that's where they think the political winds are blowing instead of getting out there and making the case that just because Iraq and Afghanistan, one was wrong, both were badly done, does not necessarily mean that you do not do it at all and that sanctions are the only answer. To me, it's a lack of uh, being able to clearly discuss with the American people why this matters And if you make a case that it matters, and I use Ronald Reagan as a case in this, right? Somebody who was able to talk about it and his team articulately talked about it. You can talk to the American people and actually make a case on why, what it is. This is what we need to do. This is how uh, we we need to do it. Um, Patrick, um, uh, let me bring you in here uh, for, for, for a second and get your sense on, you know, ultimately, when we apply sanctions, and if they're thoughtful sanctions, they don't just penalize Vladimir Putin, but they penalize the elements of Vladimir Putin's power, for example, Rosneft and uh, Russian energy sector and, and what have you. The Chinese have been very careful to avoid not getting hit by this, by, by these sort of secondary sanctions. How do you structure this in a secondary sanction way to make it really hard on the Chinese as well? Or is that seen as a step too far. Let me step back and just say that what we're talking about here uh, is the economic dimension of strategy. And the problem is with when we're too reductionist and we focus on sanctions as really the only tool in the economic strategy toolkit. Um, And that's why trade matters. That's why investment in technology matters. That's why the Chinese are worried about tech decoupling, hurting their ability to to supplant the Americans in space and aerospace technology and and IT and so on. Um, But sanctions are not frightening many people because they're able to, in this case, China is able to give a lifeline to Russia or to North Korea, uh, or China is able to put enough pressure to um, ensure that the secondary sanctions don't hit them. Um, And so far, they've got enough support internationally in the financial community to do that. Um, So that's the problem of the sanctions. On, on trying to make sanctions part of effective strategy. Uh, on the Russian case, the, the case for sanctions and for, for dramatic sanctions, like even the nuclear option they call in terms of taking Russia out of the SWIFT banking system, um, if they invade Ukraine, uh, the reason to do that, they would argue, would be not first to deter Russia, to help them think about it, because Russia's weakness right now, Putin's biggest weakness is his economy. Um, and he, right. he wants to talk about everything but his economy, but that's what's really hurting in Russia. China's economy has lots of challenges, but it's going to muddle through. I mean, you know, it's so it's big. It's so big right now. It's such a behemoth. Slowing down is still enough for the for the near term and midterm. Who knows about the long term? Um, so so China has a lot more latitude here. North Korea, on the other hand, doesn't have a lot of latitude. I mean, North Korea has just released a documentary, a two hour documentary about Kim Jong Un. Um, And it talks about him openly withering away, you know, on behalf of his people, but losing weight because there's a chronic food shortage and he's not going to eat and uh, things are hurting. Um, That's a recognition uh, that, yeah, there is real economic pain in North Korea, and yet they will not deviate one iota from a nuclear deterrent capability because North Korean strategy believes that they can bust sanctions enough, especially with China's lifeline now, to, uh, to, to get along, especially for the elite, 
uh, while they continue to bust these sanctions. And if you think about the seven days of testing in January, right, a new record where they had nine ballistic missiles, two land attack cruise missiles, including the IRBM that they launched on the 30th of January, the longest range missile launch uh, since 2017. Um, North, North Korea is saying, you, United States, uh, UN sanctions, you, you can't stop us. Um, in fact, everybody is now talking our game, the Pyongyang game, which is what? My Kim Jong-un's self-imposed sanctions only on ICBMs and nuclear tests. And by the way, I'm getting closer and closer to just doing away with that. And soon I will, in the coming months, coming year, right. I will have an ICBM test. Um, I, I, I would like to point out uh, that Kim Jong-un was, uh, by all accounts, the heaviest single North Korean uh, in any uh, video clip that you saw. And of course, he does have health problems, right? I mean, so the weight loss is not just seen as good, you know, politicking on his part, but actually, um, you know, maybe a, a sign of uh, underlying health. Uh, you know, that somebody was telling me that actually Putin may have some underlying health problems that may be motivating his sense of urgency uh, to to try to get um, uh, to try to get things done. Um, Mark, really quickly on North Korea, anything you want to add uh, on that? It's kind of a reminder to us that uh, you know that as we think more and more about you know defense against hypersonics, ballistic, and cruise missiles from China, that we still have to maintain some focus for the defense of uh, of United States forces in Korea, United States forces in Japan. Guam, Hawaii, and even the West Coast of the United States against this North Korean threat. And it is a, uh, you know, it is developing the, their ability to put, um, you know, decoys and deceptive maneuvers into their, uh, into their uh, missiles is going to develop over time as they get assistance from countries like China and Russia. And so we're going to have to continue to make the investments for a zero, you know, kind of a zero defect capability against that North Korean, uh, against that North Korean threat. And just one more, you know, thing to fold into our nuclear posture review that's, go excuse me, our ballistic missile defense review that's going on right now. Um, I, I find it fascinating that the two in their statement today uh, said that we have to, uh, you know, be careful about Cold War. Uh, what does it say? I, it, didn't, it wasn't ideologies. It was Cold War. Cold War thinking. Yeah, let's say Cold War thinking. thinking, but it was it was a more uh, it was a more interesting way uh, that they that they put it. And I don't have it in my notes, so I can't find it. Uh, and we're running short on time uh, very quickly, Patrick, uh, because I want to end uh, with Dove talking about Israel uh, and the Gulf. Uh, do you do you think it meant like what did it what, was it a slap uh, to have a a, a uh, somebody of uh, allegedly Uyghur descent? Uh, being a co-flame lighter at the start of the uh, Olympics. I mean, didn't didn't see that coming. Um, I mean, does that fool anybody? It, it shouldn't fool anybody, but it probably will fool some people or enough people who want to not feel guilty over participating and watching uh, these Chinese-held Olympics. You know, I think all Americans can make a distinction between the athletes and their ability to compete in the Olympic Committee's bad decision to let China do two Olympics in such a short period of time and China's human rights abuses in particular. Um, it doesn't mean the athletes aren't going to cause a stir, by the way, and you've already seen this uh, in other ways, right? I mean, we have a, an American rear skier and Eileen Gu uh, on, the, on Team China, and we had a Taiwanese skater wearing a China uniform. Expect more antics by some of the athletes, as well as maybe some of those in the pageantry of the opening ceremony, to send signals intentionally or unintentionally, but China clearly has got a TV production here that they've carefully uh, sort of manufactured for a virtual global audience to, to, to put on goodwill for China. Uh, ideologized uh, Cold War approaches. Uh, that's uh, that's what they said. I loved in particular when uh, Putin stood, you you had his little videographer shooting a glory right for one of those uh, terrific uh, Kremlin uh, pr productions. Um, utter, utterly, utterly lovely to see uh, all the time. We may not have Stalin, but if Stalin was alive, I think he would approve. Uh, I wonder if Putin uses blue pencil. That's another it, issue. It, by uh, the way, on the Stalin issue, I mean, one, one of the points that struck me was that when Stalin made the green light, gave Kim Il-sung the green light to invade uh, South Korea in, in the Korean War in 1950, um, he did so in part, large part, because he thought Moscow was losing control over the East. This was their last chance to kind of shape the post-World War II East. Now, with China so dominant and driving so much of the international community, uh, Russia is very aware, once again, 
that um, it, it's China that's driving this. And so they want to they want to hide and, and, and get on the bandwagon with China. Dove, uh, why don't you close out uh, the program? Right. Another kind of extraordinary week. We saw Benny Gantz in Bahrain, uh, as well as Israeli ships, uh, Saudi ships, Yemeni, Pakistani uh, and uh, Omani, all uh, together with with U.S. forces in, in the Red Sea. Talk to us about what both of these mean. And if you want to give us a quick Iran update, uh, as you do each week, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, Benny Gantz, the uh, defense minister and former chief of staff and also the deputy prime minister, uh, was in Bahrain uh, this week, signed a, a security agreement with the Bahrainis um, and visited the Fifth Fleet. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that Central Command now includes Israel, you go down to Tampa and you see the Israeli flag with all these other uh, flags, most of them Muslim, uh, that's a big deal. And so, the Central Command's major exercise, this uh, international maritime exercise, uh, which included 60 countries and a ton of Muslim countries, and not just those that have formal agreements with Israel, but those that don't. Uh, Pakistan is a big deal. <laughs> and even Yemen, which I didn't know could do anything right now, given their civil war, uh, was also involved with the Israelis and, of course, the Saudis. And we know that uh, when the prime minister of Israel flew uh, to the Emirates, he flew over Saudi Arabia. Things are changing there. And of course, Tehran takes notice. Now, quite honestly, uh, <laughs> even with all of that, without the United States, all of these countries are still highly vulnerable to the Iranians. The Iranians know it. They know it. Um, but again, it, it raises the question, if, if this is what's going on in the Middle East, um, and if the United States is backing away, who's going to fill that vacuum? They can't do it all by themselves. And that means that Russia, which is already there, and China, which is moving in quickly, once again, are going to be involved in something that probably will make us uncomfortable. Uh, in, indeed. Any, any last thoughts from any of our team before we part for the week? Yeah, one other thing, uh, the, the mention of how the Chinese are stage managing this thing. Uh, Laney Riefenstahl, the great Nazi propagandist, was the one who did the exact same thing for Hitler in 36 and 1936. And the, clearly the Chinese have taken a leaf out of that book and just expanded on it. Uh, the, the triumph of the will is, is really an extraordinary uh, piece of filmmaking and worth watching for anybody uh, who who wants to understand propaganda, how it can be used, how Putin is using it, and how she is using it. So, uh, as as troubling uh, as as it is, and and Dove, uh, just just to tell the audience, you're also reading a very very interesting book about the 1936 Olympics. Tell people, about yeah, it. it's this fabulous book called The Boys in the Boat, and it's about all these young kids from the University of Washington who. Uh, uh, many of whom were dirt poor, quite frankly. You had the Dust Bowl in those days and, and terrible weather conditions that make the ones going on now look uh, tame by comparison. How they made it to the 36 Olympics, how they won. And of course, uh, part of the background to that story is exactly what I mentioned, the Hitler's effort to uh, burnish Germany's image exactly the way the Chinese are doing it right now. Um, I uh, said that we would end with you, but I made a big mistake because I completely forgot to ask Michael uh, about uh, the GOP's decision uh, to censure both uh, Liz Cheney and Adam uh, Kinzinger. Uh, and I wanted to give you a bite uh, of uh, that apple because originally the idea was try to get them expelled from Congress, uh, which uh, is uh, extraordinary. Uh, right. I mean, obviously, uh, Adam has decided, sadly, not to run for uh, Congress again, but Liz Cheney is going to be in a fight. Um, as a Democrat told me, I never thought I'd ever find myself rooting for Liz Cheney, and I find myself rooting for Liz Cheney a lot, uh, was, was their observation. Uh, what does this mean, if anything? In the end, it doesn't mean a lot, but there's still a lot that remains to be seen. I mean, it was disappointing to see, but I think you know, the RNC chair is really much seems to be more, more of a pawn of uh, the, the Supreme Leader in exile down at Mar-a-Lago. And the more the January 6th commission ends up you know, getting closer to the president, the more nervous people uh, tend to get in his circle. So, you know, the initial um, resolution that's supposed to be debated this weekend, I think is when the, the winter meeting is for the RNC, um, censuring 
uh, Cheney and Ed Kinzinger was supposed to be actually even stronger because it called for them to be expelled uh, by the from the party by McCarthy. So I think McCarthy got them right. to water it down a little bit. But you know, this is not a good McCarthy doesn't want this. I mean, so let them be censured. But he's I think the next concern is uh, do members of his conference use that censure to pressure him to try and expel them? And this is not the attention that the Republicans want on themselves right now, while the Democrats are flailing nationally. And there's a sense that the Republicans are going to make major gains and take the House back in November. So this is a distraction uh, that they don't want, especially since Kinzinger is not going to be here next year. And most people believe that Cheney will lose her primary, although you know she knows her state better and uh, she seems to be very confident. But this is a, a, a distraction that does not benefit uh, the House Republicans right now. Do Democrats use this to run against Republicans? I mean, do, do, do votes on this potentially backfire on Republicans um, in some places? I, I don't think so. I mean, this is not a, a, an issue, I think, that resonates with voters at the polls, especially at a time where we have you know, rampant inflation and increased time and a lot of you know, problems uh, internationally uh, that the, the administration needs to show that they need to know how to handle. I mean, look, I think the Republicans are going to be able to win the House back just based on the fact that the Democrats are not doing a good job. Now, they are going to, I think, come out with an agenda later this year. Uh, but, you know, this could hurt them in some of these races where they are close, because I think that, you know, the country uh, voted for a, a sense of return to normalcy in the last election, didn't get that. So it doesn't mean that they're wanting return to Trumpism. So I think a lot of these candidates that are running on the far right that are going to be attacking uh, Cheney and Kinzinger uh, are not uh, will not resonate with a lot with their voters. Uh, a Republican friend of mine observed to me, because obviously, right, I mean, there have been a lot of quotes from uh, the former president. Uh, and, uh, you know, my observation was the best thing that happened to Donald Trump was getting thrown off of these social media platforms because it distanced him from people and they've forgotten about him, even though he's doing whatever he wants, he is doing in order to be able to build up his war chest and to run. And it was interesting that a Republican friend of mine said, wow, I'd forgotten exactly how crazy he was. Boy. And that was that was the interesting thing for me is, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are, don't remember or have forgotten conveniently or otherwise, uh, or being out of sight, out of mind. And it was just sort of an interesting, interesting refresher, right? That getting kicked off of social media might actually have been the best thing for him. In, in terms Agreed. of being able to build up his brand and have a lot of people say, like, you know, uh, you know, be wistful for Donald Trump. Right. I mean, he does put out statements on his website almost every day that are pretty crazy and people will reach put those on Twitter, but he's not getting the play that his Twitter feed right. did get before. Right. Well, I mean, Republican friends were like, oh, my God, he was so annoying and crazy. Uh, and it was it's interesting that, you know, there are some people who remember how how crazy it all was but it, it was apparently in the mind of some uh had had devolved to less crazy guys thanks very much hope everybody has a great weekend uh and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week thanks a lot and now a word from our sponsor retired united states army major general jeff schlosser who is the executive vice president for strategic pursuits at bell we've been building creative and innovative aircraft next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades bell is the company that can deliver that Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.